Hey everybody, it's the Loop Mechanics Podcast. Your hosts Bealus and Scormus are here to ramble on for a while about video and tabletop games, or whatever nonsense comes into their twisted little minds. Then, if you are very lucky, they will crawl off back under the rocks from whence they came, only to return again, like clockwork, next week. Seriously, these idiots are more unavoidable than death or taxes, and much less pleasant to endure. Anyway, enjoy the show, if you can. So, hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm Scormus. I'm Bellis. Anything going on with you recently, sir? Well, I recently purchased um, Pathfinder, Wrath of the Righteous. Oh, yeah? It's another CRPG. Loads of fun. Haven't gotten very far into it, but, you know, haven't had a lot of time to play either. Right, right. I, um have been trying to talk myself out of buying a game, actually. How would you talk yourself out of it? Um, well, you know the One Ring 2nd Edition? Mm. Oh, you're talking about a tabletop game? game. Yes. You have enough of those. You don't need more. Well, that's the thing. I don't. I keep telling... I look at the stack on top of my shelf that's already full and I've got the monument to your uh, inability to say no to Kickstarter. It's not even just Kickstarter. It's print on demand through drive through RPG. It's just finding other games out there. It's so many games, but the one ring though, it's the one ring second edition. Whoopee. It's supposed to be so good. It's getting so good reviews, and it'd be here in March. I got plenty of time to get the new shelves built by then, right? Uh Uh-huh, sure. I've had those shelves sitting in my my, dining room unbuilt since December, but I have plenty of time to actually get them built in time. Then I'll have lots of room. Yeah, so... I'm probably going to buy it. Probably. But I'm trying to tell myself, no, I can wait. I can wait until it actually delivers. Meanwhile, I have three or four books of other games arriving in the next week. Mm-hmm. Mostly Kickstarters. I so, guess that you have a problem. There's that. So, Yeah. Well, no, a lot of these are, though, Kickstarters ones that I funded last year. So doesn't matter. You still have a problem. Oh, no. I'm not going to disagree on that. I'm not. I'll be completely honest. Yep. I like me some Kickstarter. And I really shouldn't because, you know, they're uh, moving to the blockchain, but that's not good. We'll get into that later. Anyway, so uh, shall we move on? Sure. You're coming to these idiots for advice. Really. Okay, so 
Today, we wanted to do something a little different, maybe a little bit more upbeat, but also something we've kind of done in the past. It's, a, it's an idea you had uh, recently. You want to talk a little bit about the uh, idea we're doing for this segment? Sure. Well, I'm, um, I do, I follow a lot of, uh, Dungeon Master, um, forums, and the one that I'm currently following the most is Dungeon Master Resources, and I see questions from, you know, other players and other DMs asking, you know, for help, and most of their questions are just obvious. But then I also have to remember that, you know, I've been DMing for a long, long time. 40 plus and years. So what's obvious to me is not, you know, so obvious to other players or other DMs. Yeah. And so I figured we could, you know, throw a few questions that uh, we saw and give our takes on these questions. Right. Now, where you're going to that uh, Facebook group, Dungeon Master resources for your questions. I did a similar thing, but I went to Reddit r slash RPG to get my questions that I wanted to address. So um, why don't you go with your first question and we'll discuss it. Okay. Well, one person asked, one of his uh, players was killed by a vampire and the party wants to use gentle repose to keep him from turning. And they want to know, will this work? And if so, how? And I watched a lot of people posting things like, well, it's a, it's a disease. So no, it won't work. Or they were saying, vampirism is far too powerful for such a low level spell. You know, things like that. But rules is written, general repose flat out says, Target corpse will not, you know, it prevents it from turning into undead until the end of the spell. Right. They don't, the, the corpse will not decay and it cannot turn into an undead. So as far as I'm concerned, yes, yes, you can. But if you don't keep that spell up, you let it drop and they're going to turn. Right. Booms. So it's... I fear it's pretty damn obvious, but again, a lot of people, they read the spell and they don't understand it or they don't, <clears throat> they don't interpret it the same way. Right. I and mean... that's one of the things about fifth edition is the DM can do whatever the hell they want. If they want that person to turn, then... General repose wasn't strong enough, and the, the power of vampirism overwhelmed the spell. Well, here's the thing. Jeremy Crawford and his team over at Wizards of the Coast, they're not stupid. No. They know exactly what they're doing. You'll see in some of their spells and some of their abilities and whatnot that they're limited, like, it'll only affect up to a certain level of a spell or up right. to a certain um challenge rating of a monster right mm -hmm. like the sleep spell will only affect x amount of hit points worth of 
our hit dice worth of monsters. Exactly. So if they had said, okay, general repose, we want to limit it so it'll only prevent you from turning into an undead up to a certain challenge rating. Right. It'll only prevent that corpse from turning into these certain lower challenge rating undeads. But more powerful ones like vampires, liches, and so forth, no, they'll turn. They could have done that. They didn't. Mm -hmm. It says they will not turn into undead. They will not turn. And as far as I'm concerned, then yes. Yes, you can. And I think it's a brilliant use for the spell. And the thing is, now, I know there's a lot of people that are like, well, rules as written doesn't mean the same as the way it should work at the table. And you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. If a game master says, no, vampirism in my world is a virus and it doesn't work that way, so it can't prevent the virus from doing its work and they will turn. Okay, that's entirely up to that particular dungeon master to interpret it however they want. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the question that was being asked. They wanted to know is, will it work? As it's written, yes, it absolutely mm -hmm. will work. So, and it doesn't say it prevents, you know, cert only certain types of turning. You know, if it's a curse or if it's a spell, but not nope, a virus. It's pretty, pretty vague. No, it just says it prevents them from turning into undead. So mm -hmm. it covers everything. I agree. And Jeremy Crawford and his folks, if they didn't want it to be so open-ended and vague, they would have limited it. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Because it's a lower-level spell that doesn't do a whole lot. It's probably not one that most people are going to take. Because it's, it's very... Um, Niche? Niche, yes. Yeah, you're it, trying it has... to prevent... Well, what, what it's usually used for is, hey, player character died, we want to be able to res him, so let's put a pause on this and cast Gentle Repose so that we can raise him when we get back to town. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very limited use, and they probably just wrote it that way, Going, okay, so if people are going to use it to kind of safeguard their dead party members or dead important NPCs, fine. But if they can find unique ways of using it to avoid other bad things like, oh, I don't know, player character got bit by a vampire. Now they're dead. They're going to turn. Let's stop that. That may seem super powerful. Compared to the level of gentle repose, that's what level one. I think it's I like second level. Okay, so it's a very low level spell that may seem overly powerful for the level of the spell. It's a unique use of the mechanics mm -hmm. because it's not a powerful spell. There are way more powerful spells at the same level that have more utility than this. If it had been just 
hey, it, it'll keep you from rotting. It'll keep the body from decaying. But it didn't have that, un, you know, preventing uh, turning into undead mm -hmm. added in. That'd have been a cantrip, wouldn't it? Probably. So, yeah, leave it be. It's fine. At least on at my table, that's how I would rule it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, shall we move on to my first question? Sure. Okay. This one is more of a open-ended sort of thing. And um, I will just get really quick. Wait a minute. Didn't I have already opened up? Yes, I did. What's your favorite science fiction RPG, and why? Me? Well, I think my favorite was uh, the uh, Star Wars game. I think it was Star Wars D20, or maybe it was D6. Well, the D6 one that we played, that was uh, second edition revised and expanded. Mm-hmm. The D20 version was the one that was based off of uh, Star Wars, I mean, of uh, Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. I have both. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. They were both fun. Yeah. Of those, I preferred uh, D6, but why did you like those? Well, just we had a good good time when we played them. No other yeah. reason. I'm actually kind of surprised you didn't choose, like, Shadowrun. Eh, Shadowrun's kind of hit or miss. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, no, I get it. it the setting is really great. The mechanics can be... Awkward? Not, yes, awkward. Awkward. Now, for me, I have a lot of science fiction games. Um, I love a lot of them. And I would have probably chosen... Star Wars 2nd Edition Revised and Expanded, the old West End Games D6-based system, because that is a really, really good game. I always come back to it. It's fun. But recently, I came across Stars Without Number. It is basically a... Uh, old-school revival science fiction game. Uses mm -hmm. mechanics very similar to old D&D, &D, but has a very modern view on how it runs. It is not just D&D &D in space. But if you're familiar with the attributes of D&D &D and whatnot, you'll immediately be able to just fall right into the game. It is incredibly fun. And I recorded some uh, play of it for Ronin Roleplaying last year. And I've scrapped those shows, not because they were bad, but because I changed the format and couldn't use three months worth of shows, but had a blast playing that the entire time. It was huge fun. I almost didn't want to stop and move on to the next game when I was done with it. That's how much fun it is. And luckily, the uh, developer 
of uh, Stars Without Number has also made Worlds Without Number, which is a fantasy role-playing game based on the same exact engine. So I'm looking forward to playing that too. In fact, I have the, uh, I went and backed the offset print version of Stars Without Number and managed to get the offset print of Worlds Without Number as well to go with my already print-on-demand versions of these games. So, yeah, I've got a lot of books. Quite a few. For it. So, yeah, good fun. And the thing, the best thing about Stars Without Number, you can download the original edition for free. And I think the... Uh, full revised edition is like 20 bucks and it is a chunky book it's got plenty of rules it is very very worth it a, definitely a quality buy so it's not like some cheap ass 20 dollar game so yeah kevin crawford is the author definitely he writes a lot of good stuff so definitely worth working at well uh looking at yourself anyway would you like to move on yes. to your second question sir sure so had another uh person posit the question if you tear a spell or a page out of a spell book can you use mending to rebuild the page and have a duplicate page created in that fashion my take is Fuck no. If um, you, uh, first off, mending won't rebuild a page. It will repair a tear. If you have two pieces, it will mend them back together. So yes, if you put the page back in place, you could cast mending on it to restore the page to the book. But you're not going to build a whole new page. A, it wouldn't create the writing because it doesn't know what writing was on that page that you took out. You know, it's kind of like if you uh, tried to repair a hole in a map. You'd have the hole would be patched, but there wouldn't be anything written in that spot. That's how the spell works. It's a cantrip, for God's sake. Right. I'm... As we talked about in the pre-show, I, I mm -hmm. mean, I agree with you completely on this. I mean, it's ridiculous to even think. Like you said during the pre-show... If they did that, they didn't take the page that was ripped out and put it back in the book and try to reconnect it. If they just said, fix the book, it would put a blank page back. It would put a page there, but not a the page that was ripped out. Because it doesn't know. It would just be a, the page. You're fixing the book, not the spell book. You're not getting the spell back that was torn right. out. But... Moreover, people need to look at cantrips differently. I don't have a problem with looking at a spell like Gentle Repose, which is, like you said, the second level spell or whatever. Second level spell. Looking at that and going, okay, it's written as this, but what ways can you use it beyond what it's, you would normally interpret it as doing? you know, extend its ability or it find unique ways of making it work because it is a leveled 
spell. It mm -hmm. has those restrictions upon it. Whereas a cantrip is not a leveled spell. It's a minor magic. Mm -hmm. People should look at that as not what can you do more with it. It should actually be what you know it what hard limits does it have because it's a cantrip it's meant for mending ripped clothes i saw people going hey a player character of mine this is way back a while ago a player character of mine had their hand cut off could i use mending to grow it back hell no uh no but it'll close the wound maybe it no, ain't gonna it won't. heal them no, because a person is not an object. You're right. It's not it, a living it thing. It targets an object. It, period. It's like they want to They want to cheese ignore it. certain words that are in the spell and think of mm -hmm. it as, oh, it can do all these great things. No. I mean, are they what are they trying to do? Rip a page out of a book and sell the individual pages to other people? Probably. Or they want to tear out one page at a time and create a duplicate book. Right. Uh, how about no? Instead of, because there's a set cost for making a second spell book, and it's a steep cost. Yeah. So no, you can't cheese it with a mending spell. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a player who is just trying to get around the rules. And yeah. No, thank you. No, I can see, you know, if you're in a boat and something keeps striking the bottom of the boat, puncturing holes in it, and you've got a wizard on there who's going mending and constantly patching those holes so they can stay afloat. I'm good with that. That would be a, a, a proper use of the, of the cantrip. Now, if something came along and ripped a huge hole in the boat, mending won't do that. It only covers like a one-foot square in any dimension. Right. That's it. So, yeah, no. Uh, no. Can't do it. But it's actually a good learning experience for that dungeon master because mm -hmm. everybody has had that player that likes to, you know, finagle around and basically do really ridiculous things with their spells or magic items or their class abilities or whatever. And this is simply another example of that. Right. And it's, it's not only good for learning to see this bullshit and put it down, but also to see how that player responds to being told no. If they're like, oh, okay, and they try to maybe argue, okay, no, it should be, but then, they, okay, no, and they eventually accept with good grace what the dungeon master said, fine, you got a good player. Maybe they tried well, to, you know, cheese it, but they they accepted it. But if they don't, uh, get rid of them, because they're going to be nothing but trouble the whole damn campaign. What I might do is if somebody went, you know, hey, I pulled this page out of my book and I'm going to try and duplicate it. And so I cast mending on the, the torn page. Okay. I might say, okay, sure. 
you have the page is restored in your book, but it is blank on both sides. And now you can't use mending to reattach this page because there's already a repaired page in there. Yeah. Now, if they went ahead and tore that the, the new page out, and they then, oh, sure, I'll let you repair it. So now that page is back in your book. It's an exercise in futility, but, you know, you're being fair. You're not letting them destroy their book. And really, it comes down to a lot of these questions come down to just making common sense decisions by the dungeon Uh master. Looking at the intent of the spell and going, okay, really, especially for a cantrip, it's got certain limits. It can't do that. You're not going to get to replace what was written on it because that's not what was originally in the paper. That's just the way it is. Anyway, moving on. This is another simple question that should be very easy for any game master to decide. But for new people, they may not be uh, willing to stand up to this particular player. Would playing an alcoholic who is also a narcissist, be too annoying to role-play? Well, it depends. You can be a narcissist and an alcoholic and not be annoying. It depends upon how much emphasis you put on those traits. If that is the defining factor of your character, you know, he is constantly drunk. If he doesn't have alcohol, he is, you know, a horrible person to be around. You know, he's just abusive and violent and just, you know, until he gets his alcohol. That might be okay for one of one game, maybe two. But other than that, the players are going to hate you. Well, I mean, if you want the rest of the group to hate you, by all means. But, you know, when the players hate you... The Dungeon Master probably hates you, too. And that's not a good road to walk down. Let me uh, expand upon this a little bit, because their description, it goes even further, and it really points out how problematic this might be. People seem to play heroes all just awesome characters with a lot of skill. How about an alcoholic priest named Father Smirnoff Red flag number one, ding. That's something I added. He is the kind of narcissist where nothing is ever his fault. Not the kind that thinks he is totally beautiful. He has hemorrhoids that flare up occasionally, and he needs a special magic cream applied from time to time. Ding. He was dating a cultist. Ding. Who he cheated on. He denies cheating, and she cursed him with the hemorrhoids. He completed a quest, but it only partially healed the hemorrhoids, so they come from time to time. He has a lot of ex-girlfriends, and they are all crazy. Ding! He has a big mouth when he is drunk, and it can lead to bad outcomes. Ding! That are totally never his fault. Why do you blame him for everything? Would this be totally annoying? Obviously. 
He says, I think it's more fun to play something like this than to min-max. No, that character right there you're describing is not a narcissist in itself. The player is being the narcissist. They're making themselves, through their character, the center of attention and making everything a comedy. Everything is, um, there is no sort of, you can't have any gravitas to your game as a dungeon master. When you've got Father Smirnoff and his magic, sorry, his cursed hemorrhoids that require a magic cream, and he's constantly drunk, and nothing's ever his fault. How much fun is that going to be for the other players? It's not going to be. That is literally the asshole who just wants to brood in the corner of the, the uh, you know, uh, the edgelord who just wants to brood in the corner of the tavern and never do anything. He's always off doing adventures on his own. Syndrome. Yeah. Only this is worse because oh, it's all focused around him. Everything will become focused around him because, oh, if other characters want the spotlight, my hemorrhoids have flared up. Someone give me my bottle and my cream. That is Oh my god, that player is so fucking gone. I'm killing that character. As a dungeon master, I'm killing that character off at my first opportunity. Because, holy shit, no, not at the table. That is insane. No. Well, actually, in my game, it would have been, so, what is your uh, concept for your character? They roll that out. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not uh, that's not conducive to good party dynamics. Find something different. Yeah, no. If yeah. if that's that's the only concept you're willing to play, I guess you have to find another group because that's not going to fly in my group. Right. Thank you. No. I mean, a player who thinks that is going to be fun is they're only focused on their own fun. And I don't want that at my table. I'm sorry, because I, as Dungeon Master or Game Master or whatever, want to have fun as well, and you're doing that simply to irritate everybody else. You may not think so, you may not admit it, but I've played limited characters before. When we were younger, back when we were playing first edition AD&D, back in the early 80s, Mm-hmm. You remember, I had a thing for playing characters that were um, limited in some manner. I had a character, one of my main characters was deaf. Another one mm -hmm. was mute. I had another person who, um, I seem to recall, had a, um, a difficulty moving around. They weren't, you know, like limited to a wheelchair or something, but they required a staff to move around. It was not a character I played much, but I liked playing, well, at the time, disabled characters. But, you know, that was what we would say at the time. It was the 80s. But you get my point. Because right. that was a something that I felt as a challenge to myself. But I also found ways 
to get around that so that it didn't impede the rest of the group. I wasn't stealing mm -hmm. the spotlight. I wasn't making things harder for the game master. No, I think wasn't I made something it more challenging to myself. Den was the deaf mute. Right. Well, he had a sword that allowed him to communicate through telepathy, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. That was the way that it ended up you being able to get around that disability of sorts. Yes. And that is, it was a way to challenge myself as a role player, but also not be a complete and utter dick to the rest of the players, let alone the dungeon master. And it worked. Mm -hmm. It was fun for me. And I think it made my character a little bit more memorable to other people. Well, it's been how many years and I still remember the name of your character? I made him in 1982. So 40 years. Yeah. And he's still my, probably my favorite D&D &D character I've ever made. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Because I had a whole backstory for him, how he lost his voice, and that sort of thing. No, he wasn't deaf. That's right. It was another character who was deaf. He was, he was just mute. mute. His vocal cords yeah. got cut because he got slashed across the throat when he was uh, 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 just learning to be a fighter. And so he was a basic fighter. Right. See, that, going into backstory and doing something like that, is totally cool. It's doing something like this, though? No. No. Now, well, if you're doing and... a comedy slapstick sort of game and that's what you're looking for that's what the dungeon master and the group is looking for i suppose i've seen worse but oh and i've run across that player before had one of my co-workers he was telling me about a game he was in and his character concept was he was making harry potter everybody else they had normal characters but he was going for the full-on his character is harry potter every spell he casts is from the harry potter world that's it and when you've got everybody else you know trying to play the game straight and you've got this one a-hole you know doing that you know wearing the school uniform and you know if he's going to send messages, it has to be done through an owl, you know, that sort of shit. <clears throat> I don't know. I just, I wouldn't deal with it. No. No, that's just uh, a little much. Well, and his whole thing was, is the glee in his eyes as he just knew this was going to annoy the hell out of his DM. And why would you want to do that? Because he's a dick. Well, he wouldn't be a dick at my table because he wouldn't be at my table. Right. Oh, that's your concept? You were not playing Harry Potter. That doesn't... No, you can't do that. Well, I've already made him. Make something else. Well, here's another character sheet. You can sit, and we're going to play, and you can make your character while we play. We'll introduce mm -hmm. you when you make a proper character. Oh, you want to leave? Well, bye. Have fun. Anyway, would you like to move on to your final question? Sure. Now, this one, again, it's kind of obvious, but 
it's again taking a spell and using it in a very um, creative way. And so the person asked, is casting heat metal on a gunslinger's gun going too far? And I, fuck no, that is amazing. Please do that. Well, they also added in, would the gunpowder all ignite? Um, Probably, but by the time it ignited, they would have dropped it. Unless yes. they were really, really <clears throat> insistent on holding onto that damn gun. In which case, if they held onto it long enough and it exploded, then by all means, they deserve to take the damage. Yeah. And I, I do know that, yes, I would like to say for people in that group, we already do see that, yes, that idea has already been discussed. Other people made that same answer. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, that just says, great minds think alike. It's pretty oh, obvious. Yeah. Heat metal is an amazing spell. Yeah, I that doesn't always... get used nearly often enough. I know if I've got I a got character yelled at. Well, not exactly yelled at, but I got I got some really cross looks when the cleric in our party got hit with heat metal, and his um, plate armor started cooking him. Yeah. That's the thing is, if I'm in, if I have a character in plate metal, I that's one of my major concerns, is heat metal because you can't get out of that armor fast enough, and there's no saving throw. You're yes, going it's concentration. to burn to death. Well, if, you're going to take a whole lot of damage. It takes, I think it's like three minutes to get out of plate armor. I think that's with help. Mm-hmm. And it's every round you're taking 2d8 damage, I think. Well, here's the thing. Oh, and you mentioned in the pre-show, it can be up-leveled. Uh-huh. So it doesn't even, it's even worse. But here's the thing. Yeah, for every level above second, it's 1d8 extra bonus damage. Imagine you are a troop of warriors, and you've got this big bad fighter plate armored up and that's their, their boom they're they're the tank they're leading the way and you're facing off against a foe that's hidden in ambush mhm mm and now there's suddenly a heat metal spell going off onto your tank where's the spell coming from well, in well, actually, the way hidden works is if you it's kind of like invisibility. If you cast a spell or make an attack action, you are no longer hidden. So they would see where the, the spell came from. But if that person had, say, an invisibility ring that they could activate, that wouldn't affect with their concentration. So they could turn invisible and disappear and that heat metal's still going. What I'm saying is they're in the woods. They cast it at range. In the woods, they have not been seen. Suddenly, there's a heat metal spell going off on this guy. They don't know where it came from, and now they're poof. Yeah, and they can be up to 60 feet away when they do it. So they're, they've got all this time concentrating. They're hooking this guy to death. How do you stop it? 
Oh, you might scatter out. You might have somebody try and help them take the armor off, but they may burn themselves in the process. Oh, yeah. Every it's time a... they touch the metal, they take 2d6 damage. Or 2d8 damage, sorry. Who says there's only one spellcaster? There's others. Mm -hmm. If it's a full ambush and your whole team is now being attacked and distracted while your tank books. Yeah. Not so slowly either, depending on the law. Oh, no. So, yeah, you got a gunslinger that's up there, similar idea, and suddenly their gun starts heating up. Let's say it's not in their hand. It's holstered. Maybe they don't even notice it for a bit that it's gone, that it's, uh, because it's again, they're being, the spell's being cast at distance. They don't know what's happening. And then by the time they realize it, boom, gun go bang. It's a great way to destroy their weapon. Now, personally, I'm not going to do that because the overall reward, there are better, there are more efficient spells in the long term. I mean, uh, heat metal. Do you happen to know what level that is? Second level. So I was going to say, it's not that far away from fireball. No, but if you're trying to take out a target, heat metal is. If you're going after one specific target and you want to cause chaos, heat metal is amazing because it also has one other feature. If you cannot drop the target of the spell, you have disadvantage on your next attack while this is in effect. Ugh. So that fighter is maybe not taken out completely, but they are hampered. Yes. Seriously harsh. It is definitely a seriously harsh spell. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I think we both agreed that, yes, you. It, it's not going too far. Rules as written, heat metal absolutely can and should be used on a gunslinger's gun. Mm-hmm. Now, does heat metal affect magic items, though? Yes. Okay, well, damn. It's... Choose a manufactured metal object, such as metal weapon or suit of heavy or medium metal armor that you can see within range. You cause the object to glow red hot. Any creature in physical contact with the object takes 2d8 fire damage when you cast a spell. And until the spell ends, you can use a bonus action on each of your subsequent turns to cause this damage again. Oh. So that's a good bonus action. Yeah. Yeah. No saves, just burn, burn, burn. Uh-huh. Especially if you used, say, a fifth level spell that you weren't re really needing, and you just upcast it to fifth level. That's 5d8 per round. Yeah, that's going to take out your uh, big, beefy tank in very, very short order. Mm-hmm. Because you're looking at upwards of 40 points of damage, probably an average more in the 20 to 25, every single round. Yeah. Uh, that's Sure, it's a concentration spell, but if done in a guerrilla tactic, I mean, if they're a uh, 
obviously seen mage doing the wom 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 and they're burning to death, your ranger or whatever is going to be able to take them out, break that concentration fairly easily, or at least have a good chance of it. But if it's a more of a ambush style attack, oh, oh yeah. So yeah, your gunslinger, that's a great way to at least disarm him. Now, the question is, is it going to make the gunslingers, the gunpowder in the gun, go off immediately when it first goes off? Is the I wouldn't gun just say, going to explode? I'd say, it, I'd say it takes a round. Now, That's I just would, my take on it. Since it goes immediately to the full damage right away, I would say it's going to cook off the gunpowder. But... That gunpowder may, that doesn't mean that the gun's just going to go boom and explode. It may just mean the rounds cook off. That they go, because it's not the uh, strike, is uh, the, uh, depending on the, if it's a, like a standard bullet, it's not hitting the charge in the back to make it go boom and shoot forward through the thing. If it's like a, more like a revolver, the chamber of the revolver may explode at worst, and one bullet might shoot forth out of the bullet out of the uh, barrel. But that's it. It all depends on how the gun is constructed, though. You I would say the gun needs to be repaired once it's done. Oh, absolutely. If it's a multi-barrel style weapon, mm -hmm. I would have all the bullets go off. But it's not aimed at that point. So it's not like there you get, a, that's a quick way to go, I heat metal and make my gun, all bullets go off, and I fire all whatever rounds it is. Okay, you fired them off, they weren't aimed, so they go and shoot and do nothing damage-wise. Oh, and by the way, you've destroyed your gun, now has to, you have to pay to have it repaired. Good job! So I'm not sure where they that came up with the specifics of why this question would be there. But it seems to me like rules is written. Yes, of course, it can be used on them. Well, I and don't think that's what they were asking. They were asking, would it be too much to do that? Of course not. I think they were trying to, like, they thought, hey, you know, this would be awesome to take care of that gunslinger. Fuck him up, you know. And they're like, mm, no, nah, I'm being too mean. No, you're not being too mean. You're... Protect are the monsters in the game, the antagonists of the game. They're not stupid. If they have heat metal, they're going to use it in the most destructive and creative ways they can. If they don't, then you're cheating your players. Right. Well, imagine you know, you've got um, a group of players. Their characters are going to focus fire usually the most dangerous targets. They go and they see the big nasty wizard and his minions. Oh, some of them may fight the minions to keep them off, but they're going to try to kill the damn wizard, right? Uh -huh. So if you've got the big nasty tank in his armor, or you've got the scary gunslinger with his, you know, awesome gun, and you know he's a danger, you're going to use what you have to stop them. And if heat metal on their gun is a great way to stop that gunslinger, 
you're effectively disarming him by destroying their gun. Yeah, yeah, you do that. As I would say you're a bad dungeon master if you don't do that. You're doing a disservice to your NPCs. I think from now on, all my uh, casters need to have heat metal in their, uh, in their arsenal, and if I, it's possible for them to have it. I think it's an excellent thing that my character is a warlock <laughs> and doesn't wear armor. Anyway, so I have a final question I'd like to go over. Sure. And this is actually one, I, mean, I know we've gone long on this segment, but it's a fun segment. I'm having a good time. How would you run or play a game that has ruled out PC death? Now, just a little further, it says, let's say you are playing a tabletop role-playing game that is fairly traditionalist. It's high action with rules for combat, death, uh, health pools, etc. But for whatever reason, character death is totally off the table. You and the players have agreed that you are going to follow this cast to the end of their story, and the only dying will be possible at the finale of the campaign. So how do you maintain the stakes of a fight if death is off the table? What do you do when the entire party is wiped out by a mindless monster intent on eating their bones? What sorts of consequences or changes for dying do you think would be the most satisfying to you as a GM or a player if death was off the table? What I would do is your players die, but in more of a video game sense. You respawn due to this magic crystal or whatever. If you, if you had all your cool gear and you went into the dragon's cave and the dragon just stomped the party, then everybody respawns back at this crystal naked. You got Nothing. You have to start over, collect your gear, or collect gear to go out and possibly recover the gear that you lost in that cave. And now all your old gear has added to the dragon's loot. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Personally, and I, I believe some other people in this uh, Reddit forum did suggest something similar, so not trying to, you know, steal their thunder, but... Um, there are more than one way to threaten player characters. There's more than one way to have danger when it comes to an adventure. Let's say I've got a big bad evil guy who it's not a matter of the player characters are off trying to stop the big bad evil guy. I've got a big bad evil guy that's looking for revenge against the player characters for some perceived wrong. Maybe they defeated one of their important plots some time ago, and they've now made it their mission to destroy these player characters. But not in a... Death is too easy. No. No. That's not what they're looking for. They don't want to kill the players. No. They want them to survive. Because they want to see everything they build, everything they've worked for, fall to ruin. That is a 
player, that is a big bad evil guy that is to be feared. They may not even know this person is a problem. All they know is everything they try to do doesn't work out. Oh, that dungeon they're looking to go loot? It's already been looted. This uh, um, princess they go to rescue and bring back to the king to you know get their reward? They go, they fight their way through it, and it's already been taken away. If they manage to do it, great. But if they, if there was a battle where they would have normally been too much for them, you don't throw mindless monsters at them that want to eat their bones. You throw impediments against them that cause them strife, that make them think of ways to get around these problems. Not something that's a mortal threat, something that's more personal, financial, uh, something that involves their familial relationships, their friends, their families, putting them at risk, as opposed to physical, mortal danger. And it's a great way to confuse your players in the first place. Who is doing this to them? Why would they do this? Makes them rethink their whole existence, their whole, what they've been doing with these uh, characters to try to discover who the true threat is. This person, this big bad evil guy may even be someone that's helping them along. If one of the characters were to die through accident or misfortune, they raise them back to, to health. They're a patron, someone that has helped them in the past. The kindly gentleman who has been willing to back them in the past and sent them on missions, given them support, all the while looking for ways simply to slowly and inevitably bring them to ruin. That's how you avoid it. Or that's how I would avoid it anyway. Well, I mean, you could also go with the, uh, he doesn't want them to die. He's just going to slowly chip away at their sanity until they are destroyed that manner. Exactly. And there's also the simple ones that was also, of course, mentioned in this uh, Reddit thread. The simple ones of, oh, your person didn't die. You're, instead of a TPK, they all wake up. All their gear's been removed and they're in jail. Or they've been thrown into the prisons. They've been captured by the enemy. Maybe instead of um, getting killed, they, they oh, the big mindless monster that wants to eat their bones, oh, yeah, it breathes flame on them. It's a dragon or whatever. And everybody fails. And everybody's down. Oh, we're all screwed. No! Because another adventuring group came in, beat the monster back, drove it away, and now you've been rescued by this other team, who, of course, will want to... Oh, they'll, they'll bring you to the uh, temple so that you can be resurrected. They'll take care of that. But, of course, they're going to take uh, a fee of some of your gear and all of your loot because, you know, they did drive away the dragon. 
You didn't actually die. You were defeated. That's the thing about D&D. It's one of its benefits, but also its uh, shortcomings, is that it's actually kind of hard to die in the game. With all the death saves and whatnot, you can avoid Mm -hmm. death pretty easily. And a dungeon master doesn't have to kill anyone, ever. Your mindless killing machine that you threw into it? Okay, there's a TPK. You didn't mean that to happen. So they wake up and they're captured and, oh, they're badly hurt but they're still alive and the players still get a chance to succeed. That's not cheesing it. That's D and D fifth edition. It's the way the game works. Mm -hmm. But I like the uh, big, bad, evil guy. That's just fucking with you. Definitely works. Are we done with this shit yet? So, Beelis, now that I've got all that vitriol out, uh, I'm pretty much done for the week. Did you have anything you'd like to finish up the show with? Well, um, on a previous show, we talked about, you know, Blizzard being bought by Microsoft. Blizzard, Activision, you know, and all the studios in that umbrella being bought up. Big dollars. Well, in response... Sony went out and bought Bungie Games, which has like um, Destiny and Halo. And it just worries me that this is going to be the future where every time you get, you know, a, a, a company comes out with X game, it's going to get bought up by the two big dogs and you're not going to get to play it unless you're on Xbox or on PlayStation. This exclusivity is just going to fucking kill gaming (sighs) because their pissing contest is too much. They have to have, you know, the final say now. Perhaps. Well, no, there is a, there is a, a bright light with this. Okay. Because, um, Microsoft flat out said that they intend to have those games that, you know, they've got under that umbrella of Activision Blizzard coming out on Switch. They did not mention PlayStation. Right. But they are making sure. Oh, no, they did say PlayStation on a couple things. They're still going to be releasing Call of Duty on PlayStation, they're going to bring it to Switch. They're going to bring a bunch of these games to Switch. Okay. Because it makes good financial sense to do so. Yeah, because more platforms is better overall. That's more dollars spent in mm-hmm. theory. Because if you got a, you know, a PlayStation bro who absolutely refuses to buy an Xbox, well, you that's, you know, money you want to get from him too. Yeah. And vice so, versa. Like I said, it's possible that it's going to be a good thing, but, you know, I don't trust corporations. Sure. But I would like to point out that back in the 
80s and 90s and such, back when you had Nintendo and Sony, I'm sorry, Sega, those are the big names in consoles. There were others, but those were the big two. And in many cases, they didn't share titles. If you wanted to play Sonic games, you had a Sega. If you wanted to play Mario games, you had a Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of other smaller titles that were exclusive to like the uh, Sega Genesis or Master System or whatever. Right. And you had others that were uh, exclusive to the Nintendo Entertainment Center, the Super Nintendo, and so forth. And they both thrived. They did fine. So I don't see the exclusivity being a huge problem. What is a bigger problem is having two main companies, Microsoft and Sony, owning all of these other studios. It used to be you had a lot of third-party studios. Now... They're all effectively first-party studios. They're all within their umbrella. And Sony still controls more studios than Microsoft, but the amount of uh, third-party studios is getting less and less, and you're basically going to end up with stuff that's owned by Microsoft, stuff that's owned by Sony, and a bunch of small indies who will eventually also get bought up as well. As, you know, if they have a big hit, well, suddenly, oh, Microsoft just snagged them, or Sony just snagged them. The one company that's kind of staying out of the fray is Nintendo. They don't need, they, they've said, they don't feel a need to compete with Microsoft and Sony on that level. They're doing their own thing. So, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Anyway, so, uh, do you have anything else? No, that should be it. All right. Well, till next time, I'm Scormus. And I'm Pellis. Generic catchphrase ending? Well, look at that. You made it through an entire episode. Good for you. Now, here's your prize. Ads. Please drop by whatever service you heard this abomination of a podcast on, and give the show a great review. You can also come by our website scoreme.com, check out our blogs, podcasts, and other content, and leave some comments. Finally, join our Discord server. You can listen to us record Loot Mechanics Live, and chat with other fans. You'll find the link on the website. Until next time, I'm the digital voiceover guy, telling you to kindly, fuck off.